This past week, we saw a major upset in U.S. politics, where several state elections provided a referendum on the Democrats' progressive social agenda, including in public schools. This is what the Wall Street Journal had to say about these events. This is a sonic boom of a wake-up call for Democrats. The state was bright blue right. yesterday, and now... As of Jan next January, the state's going to be almost entirely in control of Republicans. And that's, you know, that's a bloodbath. I don't know if it's a rejection of the Democratic Party or the party moving too much to the left or the party not delivering on, yeah. on progressivism. That's for the Democrats to work out. But it is a rejection. When mainstream media journalists sound like this, you know something seismic has occurred. And the message from November's elections is that as a direct result of the progressives' overreach, incompetence and intolerance, the Republican Party now owns the issues of personal and public security. In New York, former police officer Eric Adams' breakthrough came in a one-party city that over time has moved further and further left. Here, the progressive politics of the cosmopolitan elites are prioritized while urban crime and law and order issues plague poorer neighborhoods. It's an issue of civil security. You know, there are those who underestimated the will of our residents. Even Buffalo pushed back, voting to keep their incumbent mayor rather than risk electing a socialist. Another bellwether for voter sentiment was New Jersey's race between Republican Jack Chitterelli and incumbent Democrat Phil Murphy. What we can already take from tonight is knowing that many of our friends and neighbors like us do not want to go backward. And although it was not my intention, we have sent the message to the entire country. But the biggest upset to the status quo came in Virginia, where education security arguably became the central issue in a state where racialized curriculums are being taught in schools. They're talking about this critical race theory. And as I said before, and I'll say it again, it's never been taught in Virginia. And it, I really hate it because it's a racist dog whistle. Parents disagreed, flipping a state that just one year ago, Joe Biden won big. The reality is the challenge of overcoming a culture where the state overwhelms self-empowerment is all too common. Another sign of the times came out of Minneapolis, where there was a vote on whether to abolish the police department and replace it with the Department of Public Safety. Fortunately, the proposal was rejected, but the vote became a referendum of sorts on what's happened to police departments everywhere since the death of George Floyd. So it would seem that a lot of American people are not happy with the direction that the Democrats have been pursuing, especially with education. In a somewhat related event north of the border, concern was raised this past week regarding the removal of so-called harmful books from some school libraries in Ontario, Canada. The Waterloo District School Board has said it will be removing any books deemed to be harmful. The cambridgetoday.ca website reported that books deemed harmful to staff and students are being removed from the region's public school libraries. It says the Waterloo Region District School Board is undertaking a multi-year review of its library collections to identify and remove any texts deemed, quote, harmful to staff and students. They say we recognize as our consciousness around equity, oppression work, and anti-racist work has grown, we recognize some of the texts in some of the collections that we have are not appropriate at this point. 
So this is involving collections in elementary and secondary school libraries. The official says, we've done a great job over the years of adding collections that promote the diversity both of our workforce and our students and our community as a broader point. And so now they see the need to spend time on ensuring that we're removing, as they say, inappropriate or texts that are questionable and don't have the pedagogical frameworks that we need, which is meaning the uh, teaching frameworks that they need. So this is what um, we've heard is happening on our doorstep in the Waterloo region. The record um, news outlet says that the framework for removing the books is not shared. This is what they reported on October 29th. Officials are planning to remove books from school libraries, but we haven't been told which ones will stay, which ones will go, or how it will be decided. So unfortunately, we don't know who will be reviewing the library items, and we don't know the criteria by which a book will stay on the shelf or be discarded. This matters. The library is a very important place in a school where a child can find out about something or explore a point of view all in relative privacy, end quote. So this is what has been um, taking place here. And so we wanted to look into this to understand what's behind it and whether it should be of concern. And when we look at the website for the Waterloo Region School District, what we find is that this is in fact reflecting the position of the Ministry of Education in Ontario that goes back a number of years, actually, to 2009. And this is not just a issue which concerns this region here in Ontario, Canada, but it is a issue which concerns many countries um, in the West, whether it's Australia, the United States, or Canada, or probably the United Kingdom as well. This is an effort to make education, as they see it, more equitable, more inclusive. And so our question is, what exactly does that mean? So quoting from the um, district's website, they say, Ontario's Equity and Inclusive Education Strategy, first launched in 2009, aims to help educators across the province better identify and remove discriminatory biases and systemic barriers to support the achievement and well-being of all students. These barriers related to racism, sexism, homophobia, and other forms of discrimination may prevent some students from reaching their full potential. So we see what exactly it is that this inclusive education strategy is looking to achieve. It's looking to um, deal with different forms of discrimination as they see it. But what we'll see is that some of these so-called forms of discrimination go against what the Bible teaches. For example, sexism, the idea that the traditional roles of men and women in the home and in the workplace um, should not be tolerated and is something that needs to be 
purged from um, literature, from the education system. Well, who was it that was behind this um, new strategy, this new education strategy that came out in 2009? Well, it's always good to look into these things and to make yourself aware. It was at that time, actually, that Kathleen Wynne was the Minister of Education here in Ontario. And for those who don't know who she is, she was a lesbian um, Premier of Ontario for the period 2014 to 2018. And going back to 2001, she helped to pass a measure encouraging public schools to purchase teaching materials reflecting the presence of gay and lesbian parents in modern society. And so you can see that it's not just about the roles, uh, traditional roles of, of men and women, but it's also about um, these gender issues as well. So then in 2006, she became the Minister of Education under the Liberal government, and it was during that time that this strategy, this equity and, and inclusive education strategy was put forward, which is still being implemented uh, at this time. And so during the time when um, when was the Premier of Ontario, in 2015, her government introduced changes to the sex education curriculum, which had not been updated since 1998 in public schools. And quoting, it says, however, these changes were met with controversy and criticism, not only by the opposition parties, but among parents and conservatives. In one instance, some schools were empty as some parents pulled their children out in protest of these changes. And I remember at that time that there was a sudden surge in parents interested in homeschooling their children because they did not want their, their young elementary school children to be exposed to all of these ideas. That was what happened at that time. Well, what is it then that informs our schools about their libraries? So I did some digging on this, and there is a charitable organization that advances school library learning commons, as they call it, in Canada. And what they, they mean by learning commons is a whole school approach to building a participatory learning community. A learning commons, it says, is about changing school culture and transforming the way teaching and learning occurs. So this is what this organization is about, and this is what the schools are following, elementary and secondary schools, for the most part, for their library policy. And so they have guidelines that were put out actually on October 31st, just recently, to guide schools on what they put in their libraries. And so for selecting the resources for their libraries, they say that it should be done through an equity lens. It is important that, I'm quoting here, when we are selecting resources, we use an informed equity lens and framework. In doing this, we are amplifying the voices of people and communities who have been and continue to be marginalized uh, 
due to oppressive structures. And so they believe that oppressive structures have been put in place over time by um, white people, primarily white males. And so they see this as something which needs to be um, broken down and um, done away with. And so they ask a number of questions for librarians to consider in selecting resources. And so they say, whose voices are included? Who is represented in the resource in terms of race, ethnicity, class, gender identity, and ability? Is this diversity represented in main characters or relegated to minor or token roles? In other words, these ideas of gender identity and so on should have a prominent role, not be a, a um, small part of the narrative. They ask how accurate are representations of the diversity of experiences of the range of religious, ethnic, cultural groups and individuals from diverse backgrounds, lifestyles, sexual orientation and gender identity or expression. Does the resource reflect current context for understanding history, society, and culture? It says history doesn't change, but perspectives on history change radically over time as more is uncovered and more voices are represented. Student inquiry should be informed by current perspectives. And so what they're trying to do is to have the content of the library in line with their views on diversity, sexual orientation, gender identity, and to reinterpret history through the lens that they are trying to promote now at this time, to, to rewrite history from their perspective. And so they have guidelines also for what they believe should be weeded out of the library, and it's quite um, subtle the way they do it. They use a, an acronym for weeding out these materials that they call musty. And when you think of musty, what do you think of? You think of something moldering away in the corner of your basement or at the back of your refrigerator. It's uh, something that <laughs> isn't nice. And so the first thing that they have in their, their list, M, is for misleading. So anything that is factually inaccurate, obsolete information that contains racial, cultural, or sexual stereotyping. In other words, it says, the resource no longer matches current guidelines for selection. This is the most important reason to weed. And so what is it that they, they mean by these things? Obviously, that is not stated here. And so we're, we're left to guess to some extent. But their sexual stereotypes would be, as we were saying, about the traditional roles of men and women and the traditional views on gender. Anything like that, it should be um, weeded out of the library according to these guidelines and replaced with something else that is more gender inclusive or that portrays history in a different way. And if these kind of materials are purged from the library, as it seems they're starting to do now or have been for some time, 
then they consider it to be misleading, to be harmful, and so it will not be put into a library book sale or something like that, as it may have been at one time, but it will be recycled. That's what happens with these items. So you may ask, what about the Waterloo Region District School Board? Is this the approach that they're taking, or just because it's the the common framework for schools, it doesn't necessarily mean, well, actually, this is exactly what they are, are following. On their website, they have some guidelines for the selection of educational resources. And it says that collectively, such resources, um, first point, are representative of the many religious, ethnic, and cultural groups and their contributions to our heritage are representative of the experiences and perspectives of individuals from diverse backgrounds, lifestyles, and sexual orientation, and portray gender, cultural, and racial inclusiveness. Third, reflect the Waterloo Region District School Board position on sex equity, race, and ethno-cultural relations. While these ideas are ideas which bring us into conflict with what the Bible has to say, and so this is the kind of thing which has been behind the, um, we could call it uprising, the pushback in the United States in some areas because of these ideas coming into schools and um, parents during the COVID period, of course, were exposed to a lot more of this as class was put onto Zoom and have started to ask more questions. And so we too should be looking at this and asking questions and taking an interest in what our children and our grandchildren are being taught and looking out for the ideas that are being presented to them. So what exactly was the, the issue in, in Virginia and what was the, the consequence of that as we turn our our focus back again to south of the border. I want to hand it over to my colleague, Virginia Fox, who is the ranking member of the Committee on Education and Workforce. Virginia. Thank you, Representative Stefanik. Last night's victory in Virginia proves that the voices of parents matter. It proves that parents will not and cannot be silenced. Education is at the forefront of voters' minds because it matters. It matters what our kids learn in school. It matters what books are in our school libraries. It matters what kids believe about their country. Most importantly, it matters what our kids believe they are capable of achieving. The left has tried to take education out of the hands of parents, local government, and the states for too long. This is our answer to the left's attempt to nationalize education. No. No to leftist indoctrination, no to critical race theory, and no to identity politics. Republicans believe that policy, believe in policies that unite us, not divide us. We know that education is at its best when run locally and when parents have choice. That is what we are fighting for. No child should be denied the opportunity to fulfill his or her potential. It's past time to support student-focused education. 
Virginia's election proved that school districts no longer have to kowtow to teachers' unions. The days of caving to powerful union bosses is over. The parents have awakened and are ready and willing to fight for their kids. It's a great day for the future of education in our country. So that's what the politicians have had to say about the so-called critical race theory and identity politics and its effect on our children. Now, what do the commentators think about these events? Now, Britt, thanks so much for coming on. Last night, as you were assessing what might happen in this race, you said if McAuliffe loses, th this is a massive story. Do you still feel that way? And if so, how big? Oh, yeah, I do, uh, Tucker. It was obviously a, a broadly based protest vote against what uh, Democrats see going on in Washington. And it was also a very well-engineered campaign by candidate Youngkin himself, who positioned himself as, a, as, a, as an obvious alternative, as a completely acceptable alternative to the Democrat McAuliffe, one who did not seem an extremist. He didn't seem a Trumpist. He didn't carry any of the baggage that can hold Republicans back. And, and, and the voters said, OK, and I accepted him. And huge upset, um, one that was not forecast until only recent days. Um, very skillful campaign by a novice candidate. Uh, big hill to climb. He climbed it. What's interesting, though, is that he didn't run on tax cuts. I, I, I think that was a feature of his, of his platform. But he ran on what we are told are the divisive social issues, critical race theory, what our kids are taught. I mean, he went right to the things that people talk about on social media, and he won on that. What does that tell you? Well, it tells you one thing, and that is that there's an argument about this whole question of critical race theory in this particular political race. And on one side, and you're hearing it, I heard it all day today, I saw it everywhere. Critical race is not taught in Virginia schools. Critical race theory is not taught in Virginia schools. The AP and the NBC are saying it. It's being said all everywhere on the left. In fact, however, there is ample evidence that critical race theory very much influences and, and, and is injected into what is being taught in those schools. And these parents knew that. They came to know it. It may have yeah. had something to do with the kids being at home during the pandemic and the, and the, and the kids getting a, a, the parents getting a closer look at what their kids were learning. Um, but, that, but that was out there, and the parents were right, and Youngkin was right, and the left and Terry McAuliffe and the rest of them were wrong on the facts. And as a result, uh, people, people weren't going to vote for somebody who didn't think there was a problem. Um, well, exactly. Youngkin did. You know, so that, that's that's where that comes out. And of course, you know, you have people on the on the left and some, you know, chin pullers saying, well, it was the Republicans who injected race into this election. Baloney. Yeah. Um, the critical race theory itself injects race into the lives of our school children. It should never be it should never have any influence, let alone being taught. Now, now people say you could say technically, Tucker, it's not being taught in the sense that, you know, volumes have been written on critical race theory and it's not been handed out as a textbook. But its influence and its, its tenets are in those schools. I, I've never figured out what a critical race theory is, to be totally honest, after a year of talking about it. They're teaching that some races are morally <laughs> superior to others, that some are inherently sinful and some are inherently saintly, and that's immoral to teach that because it's wrong. That would be my view. Well, and I think also, most voters' view. What's also, what's also wrong about it, Tucker, is that it, it, it rests on this idea that, that racism and racial discrimination permeates the experience of the citizens in America, that, that we are inherently and almost incurably racist, and that it influences everything, and that it sees the world through that prism. Uh, it's misguided, to say the very least, 
and people have had enough of it. No doubt about yeah. it in my mind. So what has happened in the U.S. with the elections and the education issue in these last few days has shined a light on this question. It is not the political consequences that we're interested in. It's the threat of this agenda to God's truth, to our families and our children. The same thing is happening here in Canada as well. We ought not to allow these ideas on race to be taught to our children. Our children should not feel they are more or less because of their skin color. The problem we have is human nature, and this is something that the commentators on both sides miss. As God said at the time of Noah, the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. And as we read in Acts chapter 17, God that made the world and all things therein hath made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on all the face of the earth and hath determined the times before appointed. And so we are all of one blood. God has not um, divided us based on our skin color. And in fact, from the time of Babel in Genesis 10 and the comment on it in Genesis 11, we see that God divided on the basis of language. And so he says, uh, go to, let us go down and there confound their language that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from thence upon the face of all the earth. And in Genesis 10, by these were the isles of the Gentiles divided in their lands, every one after his tongue, after their families in their nations. So we are not then to be divided based on our skin color, but the division that has come about is based on language. And so the solution to this, as we were saying, rests in the problem itself, and that is in human nature. But in God's plan, he will bring about justice on the earth. And so we read in Isaiah chapter 11, speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ, he will delight in the fear of the Lord, and he will not judge by what his eyes see, nor make a decision by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he will judge the poor, and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. Now, of course, there has been much evil done in the name of God. And so we have seen this in the residential schools issue here in Canada. And so what this has done is it has um, caused some to have reason to condemn the colonial past, as it is called. But we need to be careful with this because if we understand the real problem and the Bible's perspective on it, we will see that it is not colonialism per se that is the problem, but it is corruption from God's truth in the, the falling away from his truth, and in the evil that comes from the nature that we have. And so we read in Second of Thessalonians chapter 2, Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first, and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, 
who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. And so here we have a religious power that shows its pride and its ability to um, put itself above all. And we can see this attitude with the, the residential schools, with the forced conversions and the immorality that was shown at that time. Certainly not something that um, the Bible would support in any way whatsoever. It continues, And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth, and destroy with the brightness of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan, with all power, signs, and lying wonders. And so these things that um, we have seen are an outworking of the corruption of God's truth. And so we read in Isaiah chapter 5 and verse 20, where the prophet says, Woe unto them that call evil good and good evil, that put darkness for light and light for darkness, that put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. And so whether you're talking about the question of race or of equity or of gender and, and so on and so forth, there is a, a reversal happening. Um, we see it in the education system. We see it in other areas of society as well, where what God had said was good is being condemned as evil. And what God said is evil is being embraced as good. God made men and women equal, submitting to one another in the fear of him. We read of this in Galatians 3 and 28, Ephesians 5 and verse 20, 21, for example. But also God gave different roles to each. Therefore, we do not find female priests in the Old Testament or apostles in the New Testament. At the beginning, God designed the family in this context as part of his eternal purpose to fill the earth with a holy people. But sadly, the majority do not see fit to acknowledge God and have rejected his will. We read of this in Romans chapter 1, verse 19 to 32. So the future we want for ourselves and our children will determine how we respond to these things. And so we continue to watch for the, the Bible and the news and how to stand up for what is right in these evil last days. This has been Daniel Billington with you this week, and we look forward to having you again with us next week. Mm -hmm.